Take your Bible, turn to Mark chapter 4, Mark chapter 4. When I climbed down from singing in the choir, I wrote down, sometimes it is right to be aggressively loud about who our God is and what He does. I would be fine with singing songs like that all the time. That is, uh, that is my style if I can... If I can get it. Wonderful, glorious, holy, and righteous, victorious, conqueror, triumphant, and mighty, healer, deliverer, shield, and defense, strong tower, and my best friend. Omnipotent, omnipresent, soon coming king, alpha, omega, lord of everything. And then even as the creatures around the throne of God say this morning... Holy, holy, holy is your name. Holy. I think that in our flesh we can probably be forgiven when we take an approach to gathering together to worship the God of all creation. When things in our hearts and in our heads become commonplace and repetitive. This is what we do. It's Sunday morning. I set my alarm clock for this time. I wake up. I wear these kinds of clothes. I make sure I get the kids ready in this kind of way. Or ask Allison to make sure she gets the kids ready in that kind of a way. I read this. I listen to this. I eat this. And I make sure I'm at this place by this time. And in this class, I sit here, and in this service, I sit here, and these are the people that I might talk to, and we're going to pray, we're going to read announcements, we're going to get through it, and then we'll be done around noon, and we'll go home, and we should just be careful. We should just be careful that we, we understand the command in the New Testament to be holy because our God is holy, to be set apart, and that our worship should be holy and set apart, that this is not a casual thing. What you have in your hands, if you have the Word of God, is not a book, it's not a history, it's... It is a living, breathing, double-edged sword that cuts to the heart of who we are. And when we sing, we're not just chanting songs in a, a white-paneled room with gray chairs and a, a meager assembly. When we sing, we are approaching the worship of the Almighty God as if we have any place before Him. As if you and I, who told some lie this week or who had some evil thought yesterday or who was motivated by some selfish thing the day before, harboring some bitterness in heart, who have forgotten to pray three out of the last seven days, who barely touched our Bible since the last study, as if you and I, whatever our failings are, have any right to come before God and before his throne, and say anything to him. 
We only have that right because a holy God sent His only Son into the world to legally and finally deal with our debt of sin that we owe to Him. And apart from that legal dealing of sin by Jesus Christ, our approach before the throne of an Almighty God would be a quick experience. As Isaiah approached an Almighty God, and the only thing he could say was, Woe is me, for I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips, and I come from a generation of unclean people, and I have seen the glory of the Lord. Gideon in the Old Testament has an experience where he approaches the angel of the Lord. And he doesn't even realize it's the angel of the Lord. And when he finally does, he has to be calmed down because he is convinced. Now that he has come into the presence of the angel of God, he will die. <laughs> and, and he has to be told by God immediately, be, be at peace, you will not die. God is holy. What you do with your life, where you take your life this week, the things that you say, what you engage in. If you are a Christian, if you are a Christian meaning a redeemed follower of Christ, you are called to be holy. Well, Today, in Mark chapter 4, we're going to begin reading in verse 35. And we're going to read about some men, some disciples, whom Jesus has called to follow Him. And they do not have the advantages that you and I have. They, in some ways, have been privileged beyond what you and I have ever been privileged with. They have seen the Lord Jesus in the flesh. They have seen miraculous things. When I say they have seen miraculous things, like I believe I have uh, prayed and witnessed God do miraculous things, but not like this. They have seen the Lord Jesus speak and heal people. That kind of miraculous thing. So in some ways, they are blessed beyond what we've experienced, and yet in other ways... We are far better off than they are at this point in time because we have the fullness of the picture of Jesus Christ and they don't have it yet. They don't have it yet. And, and in this uh, passage, they're going to have a life-changing experience. A life-changing experience. Uh, so this week and next week, I'll just tell you uh, administratively, we're going to jump around twice more before we settle into a, a regular book in the second half of the year. Uh, two stories in the life of Jesus. And I'll tell you, this is a follow-up to the sermon a couple of months ago that I did on David and Saul, which was about faith and fear. This is from Jesus' perspective, and his disciples have an important lesson to learn. So, verse 35, let's just read the passage. On the same day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us cross over to the other side. Now when they had left the multitude, they took him along in the boat as he was, and other little boats were also with him. And a great windstorm arose, 
and the waves beat into the boat so that it was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on a pillow, and they awoke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And we'll pause there. So let's set the stage, if we can, just briefly here. The stage is Jesus is really kind of approaching or at the peak of his popularity among uh, the people. And he is in the region of Galilee, so he is in a, a, an area that he's familiar with and an area where people, where a lot of excitement was generated about Jesus. This is not the southern part of Judah and Jerusalem where he always faced a lot of skepticism and criticism and persecution. This is Galilee and there are great crowds following him. He has had an exhausting day. He has taught, and you can read the teaching in, in uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. He has healed, he has worked, and he has been pressed upon by the people all the way up to the edge of the sea. And the sea is the Sea of Galilee. Now, the Sea of Galilee, we would call a very large lake, not a sea in the traditional sense. So if you want to think, uh, you know, uh, Paul, I could ask you to draw a map. Saul, uh, or Paul is drawing maps for us on Wednesday nights now on the whiteboard in the back. So if you, if you miss it, you, you, you're missing a great thing. It feels a little like Pictionary until the whole picture comes together. But he drew for us in fine detail the Mediterranean Sea. And it looked just like it. The Mediterranean Sea. Well, the Mediterranean Sea should rightly be called a sea. I mean, it's not an ocean, but it is a massive body of water. It was, for all intents and purposes, the ocean of the Roman world. It was. It is a massive body of water. And then land, Jerusalem, Israel, and tiny little Sea of Galilee. It's not a giant sea. Now, it's, it's not the kind of thing that you can just make a quick trip to the other side. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a body of water. It's not a little pond. It's not... It's not like the lakes around here. It's a, it's a, it's a miles and miles and miles long uh, lake, but it's a lake. It's 700 feet below sea level, sea being the Mediterranean Sea, and it's protected by mountains all around. So when we read that, you know, Jesus went up into the mountain to pray, you know, th this was a hilly, mountainous region. This is all around this area. Um. Because of where it sat in relation to sea level and the mountains all around, it was actually a very stable sea, a very stable body of water. In fact, it is today. Stable in terms of temperature and stable in terms of, of waves. You know, it's not like Lake Erie where it's routine. You get, the, you know, warnings about, about swells and, well, we can go out on it. It's not a good idea to go out on it today. It's, it wasn't like that. It's a very stable See, that made it great for business and venture in the ancient world, like fishing, huge. You didn't need a huge sea-worthy vessel to go out and fish on the Sea of Galilee. You could take a relatively, you know, meager, stable, and, and you could make a great living on a boat like that around the Sea of Galilee if you knew what you were doing. You, you, you were not, you, it's not like an ocean, or, or, or one of the great lakes. It wasn't like that. But sometimes, because of its relation to sea level, and because of the mountainous regions around it, sometimes if the conditions are right, inclement weather could get trapped in these mountains and come down suddenly upon the sea. 
Matter of fact, uh, I was doing some reading and some exploring, and of course, uh, with the internet now, you can watch all kinds of YouTube videos and, and people from around the Sea of Galilee, and it's very rare. It doesn't happen very often. But you can catch people when there's a huge storm just because they know that Jesus ministered around the sea. They'll, they'll drive there so that they can try to get a glimpse of what it might have been like. And the waves can get, in the middle of those times, 10, 12 feet high. Now, 10, 12 feet high on a sea is not the end of the world. But 10, 12 feet high on a sea that is supposed to be calm like a lake with boats that are meant to operate on that level of water is downright terrifying. I mean, the swells are way up above a modest lake-type boat. And if, if you could imagine going to a place like Brookville Lake, where it's relatively calm, <laughs> and the choppiness is more from things flying through the lake than any inclement weather on the lake, if you could imagine the kind of boat you might take out on there and dealing with 10-foot swells, that would be intimidating. And then you expand the size of a Brookville Lake to the kind where you can't really see the other side once you get out in the middle of it in any direction, and that's a different animal. Um, I don't want to give you the impression, sometimes we talk about, you know, the disciples who were fishermen, Peter, James, and John, as if they were these great sailors. They weren't. They, they were used to being out on the Sea of Galilee. They weren't trade merchants going across the Mediterranean, all right? Their boats were for fishing in a lake-type atmosphere. That's what they did. What they experience out on the lake at this particular time is not a lake-type atmosphere. Um, in Matthew's gospel, we're told, you know, here it says, you know, that the, there was a windstorm, the waves beat into the boat. In Matthew's gospel, the description is the waves began to cover the boat. The idea being is when, when the boat went into one of the swells, from what was happening on the water, the waves all around were much higher. <laughs> you're looking up at the sea around you when you're in the middle of one of those swells. And that's not the kind of situation that I would find enviable, to say the least. So Jesus is tired and exhausted. Um, I think, you know, if you've gone out and you've spent two or three days just working in a difficult and a tough and a hot and a pressing and a no-break environment, you can relate to this. You know, you can relate to what it is to just be exhausted. And part of, part of let's push off and go to the other side is simply relief from the people. <laughs> like it's, uh, there has to be rest. The, you, know, you cannot keep a pace like that indefinitely. And he's tired. And so, gets on the very calm Sea of Galilee and goes into the boat. I like it that he says he has a pillow. I don't know why I like that kind of detail, but I like that kind of detail. I'm, I could see that, and he, he goes to sleep. Now, we're not told if Jesus is in a deep sleep. We had a pretty good storm last night. I like to open the windows. Uh, we have windows in our bedroom, and I like to listen to the rainfall. And I like that, but I'll be honest, I don't sleep the greatest when I do that. I like it, and it's not good for me, like a lot of things in life that I partake in. I like it. It's not healthy. I don't know how sound Jesus is sleeping, because he's a human being, and I'm sure there's noise. But he's, he's resting, and he's not going to stop resting. He's not getting up to go check on things. No, he's in the boat, and he's... He's done. He's, he's finished for the, for the evening. He's, he's ready to be done. 
and then this thing happens. We notice uh, in verse 36, there are a lot of little boats, um, people who chose to go with him to the other side, even though we presume they were not invited. They were just simply continuing to press in, and there's this storm, and here's the words of the disciples in Mark, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Now, perishing is not a word that we use a lot in, in common English. We would simply say, don't you care that we're, we're dying, that we're getting ready to die? And this is how they wake him up. Now, when they wake him up, as you might imagine, there's a bit of a panic. Um, this is not a calm, rational, they're probably hollering this, if you can imagine the noise of a storm like this and the commotion of trying to bail water out of the boat and keep the boat from flipping over, and he's being woken to a panic. In Matthew's gospel, we have disciples shouting simply three words in the Greek. These are the three words. Lord, we perish. <laughs> and there's a, the, Actually, the we perish is one word in the, in the Greek. All three together is, Lord, save we perish. That's it. That's a panicky way to be woken up in the middle of the night. I got woken up in the middle of the night last night. Um, I was, you know, if you, you can imagine you might have trouble sleeping from time to time if you had to stand up in front of everybody the next morning and teach. And, you know, it's not, I'm not afraid of doing it anymore, but, you know, your mind gets to wander. And I told you it's storming, the power's out. I don't know if the power was out where you were at. Power was out in our house. It was going to be back on by 10, and then 11, and then 12, and then 1, and then I think it came on around 2.30, which my children do not have the capacity to turn the switches off when the power goes out. So when it comes back on, it's like Christmas morning in the middle of the night in my house. But, but before that, I'm lying in bed, and I'm, you know, my mind's just kind of turning as I'm trying to go through this, and I'm listening to the rain, the window's open, and Allison doesn't have to speak on Sunday mornings in front of everybody, and I think she was sleeping okay, and it's dark in the house, there's no power, and all of a sudden I hear, what? Look over at Allison, and I figure, man, I must be bothering her or something, you know, just not, not sleeping while I must be distracting her, and I say, uh, are you all right? I, am I bothering you? She doesn't say anything, and I don't hear anything, and... I hear, go back to sleep. And I think, man, that's a little harsh, Allison. So I, I think, man, I guess I'm going to have to go out to the couch or something. Uh, this is rough. And then I realize Evelyn is on the other side of the bed, tapping my wife on the arm, trying to hang her up. I said, that makes more sense. So I felt a little bit better. So I called my seven-year-old over to the other side of the bed, and I hug her. And, and you know, I, I talk to her. I say, hey, that, it's going to be okay Power's going to come on. The sun's going to come up tomorrow. You got a sister in your room. Everything's going to be all right. You can go back to bed. And I prayed with her. And then I said, "Go to bed." And I hear, and he'll walk off all the way down the, the hall, because there is a panic in the minds of children and the minds of animals when you have circumstances and a storm that's just offsetting. And for the disciples, there's an exacerbated panic because even as grown men, they know that they're facing death. And you may not have thought of this, but this is the first time the disciples who've chosen to follow Jesus are facing death, following him. They've not had this experience before. Now, we know they're going to have this experience again. 
They're being exposed to the kind of thing that following Jesus is going to mean. And it's this, it's this reality of fear and faith. And what are you going to do with these two things? Um, they have to learn a faith that surpasses the fear of death. And until they learn a faith that surpasses fear even of death, the disciples are going to be very limited in what they can do in service to Jesus. We know this from how the rest of the Gospels unfold. Um, it says in verse 39, Then he arose and he rebuked the wind, and he said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. But he said to them, Why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? You see, the, see what I'm talking about here? Now, we saw this in the life of David and Saul, this fear versus faith. Jesus is making a direct connection here. Their fear is a result of their lack of faith. Their fear is evidence that their faith is not what it should be. This whole experience is a trial of their faith, and they fail. It is good for us to be tried in our faith. He doesn't simply say, Hey guys, look, come on now. I'm, you shouldn't have done this. You know, like, I didn't call you to be my disciples so we would all drown at sea. I mean, you should have known better. You know, he doesn't, he doesn't do what I did with Evelyn last night. You know, come on, the, the sun's going to come up tomorrow and things are going to be okay. And he doesn't do that. Now, is that because Jesus is not kind and compassionate? It's not. It's because in our Christian faith, we have to go through these times of facing the things that we are most afraid of, facing the things that would rob us even of life, of the lives of those that we love, and we have to be found faithful. And when we're not, we have to own up to that. We must grow. We cannot simply be driven about by our feelings and the nature of all the circumstances of whatever we confront in the world around us. The plant slowing down cannot be an obstacle to our faith. Not in the end game. Our children getting sick our husbands, our wives, maybe not being as secure as they once were. These things cannot be the end of who we are as followers of Jesus Christ. We must have a faith in Jesus that is more concrete and stable than that. The disciples had to learn this, and this is, I don't know, call it lesson number one. It's one thing to see the things that Jesus is doing on the shore, but it's another to come face to face with this kind of reality here when it's my life that's in the balance. It says in verse 41, And they feared exceedingly 
Now, that's their response. Why are you so afraid? How is it that you have no faith? And it says, they feared exceedingly. In other words, there's, a, there's another element to this here. When it says they feared exceedingly, it comes with the question, who can this be that even the wind and the sea obey him? In other words, the whole problem of their failing here is focused around they do not truly believe and understand who it is that's in the boat with them. They don't know. Now, they had experienced a lot of amazing things with Jesus already. But this experience is mind-bending for them as they think about the Lord. Until you have these experiences where you confront your fear and the things are shaken around you that you thought were the most stable, there is an element of God's sovereignty that you are just not exposed to. As they are completely exposed out there on the water and they see the Lord rescue them and they see the Lord's sovereign hand, they come face to face with who the Lord is. Thank God for the mortal danger that shows us our fearful weaknesses so that we can grow in our faith. I don't know what kind of brushes with death that you've had. But thank God when you come close to death. Thank God when you experience the pain of suffering and death. Because He's showing you, if you're a child of God, in those moments that He can be trusted. That He is faithful, even in death, which is what the disciples must ultimately learn. This lesson doesn't require anyone to die in Mark chapter 4. But in Acts, life is on the line for the disciples. It's not long when James, one of these fishermen, is martyred. Praise God for mortal dangers that show us the level of our faith. Uh, it, when I was going through this, I mentioned Gideon earlier. I thought of uh, the story of Gideon from Judges chapter 7. And I won't turn and read the whole story to you, but this, the story of Gideon is the Midianites were Israel's oppressors, and Gideon was chosen by God to save them from their oppressors. But Gideon was a man that had serious faith issues himself. He puts God to the test multiple times just to make sure he's understanding this right. But when he finally calls Israel together to go fight the Midianites... He gets 33,000 men to show up. If you're a person prone to fear and a lack of faith, 33,000 soldiers at your back will help just a little bit. And then God tells him, you have too many men. Because if you go and you defeat the Midianites with 33,000 people, the people are going to think that they're the ones that saved themselves and not me. So we need to tell a bunch of these guys to go home. And you know the guys that he picks first? This is... Judges 7, 3. Whoever is fearful and afraid, let him take his turn and depart at once from Mount Gilead. And 22,000 of the people departed and 10,000 remained. God didn't want those who were afraid. Not for this fight. 
He wanted people who were going to go in, even when they watched 23,000 others walk away, he wanted the ones who were going to stay and say, I trust God. We're going to win. It's almost like that, the choir song, the, the kind of intensity that you have to have to go into battle saying, we are going, the Lord is going to win. We are going to win. I don't know if you've ever had a moment like that in your life, but if you've even seen it depicted in movies and there's a battle scene and the, and the soldiers are getting ready to fight and these battle lines are picked at it because historically they're accurate. There was always a, there was a, a chant or a battle cry that would go up because it was this, you can't go into battle terrified that you're going to die. Not some kind of hand-to-hand combat battle. You, I mean, you have to, everybody's feeling a fear like that, but you have to deal with that fear. Send all those who are fearful and afraid home. They're not going to be of any use here. Let's get the numbers down. I want to make three applications of the passage, and then we'll close. Not a long message today. First application, and I can't stress the simplicity of this enough, but if you're a Christian, I want you to hear it because I find myself saying it to myself and to others all the time. And here it is. You do not need to be afraid. You do not need to be afraid of anything but God. You do not need to be afraid of anything but God. Now, I want you to understand what I'm saying. I don't mean that feeling fear is evil. That's not what I mean. And I'm not telling you that a good Christian gets himself to the place where he doesn't feel fear anymore. That's not what I'm saying. Fear is an emotion. It's weird. It's a weird emotion. I've been in situations where looking back on it, I should have been afraid, and I wasn't. (laughs) I didn't feel afraid. And then I've looked at other situations, and you feel almost like a coward. You're like, I don't... (laughs) I had no reason to be afraid, but in the moment, it's crippling. It's just an emotion, and it's prone to the weaknesses and the circumstances and the thoughts of every particular human being. There are things that make some person afraid that will not even scare another individual. It's just emotion. And emotions, feelings, neither good nor bad. They just are. It's what it means to be human. Jesus felt. Jesus had emotions. But when I say you do not need to be afraid, what I mean is you do not need to let fear reign or have control in any circumstance of your life. You have a way to deal with fear. I want you to turn with me to Psalm 56. By the way, Psalm 56 is why you should read 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel because you'll, you'll read about the life of David and then the Psalms will begin to make more and more sense to you and a deeper impact. This particular Psalm says... To the chief musician set to the silent dove in distant lands, a victim of David, when the Philistines captured him in Gath. Now, I don't know about you, but if I was recognized and famous for killing the champion of Gath, and then I found myself a prisoner in Gath, I would have reason to be afraid. It seems like a a reasonable thing to be afraid of. You you defeated the Philistines. You've killed thousands of them. You've been the commander of Saul's armies. And now you are captured in 
Yeah, some of you didn't know David was ever captured in Gath. You got to read 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel. He was a prisoner taken before the king of Gath. And this is a mictum of David, a saying of David when he was captured. There, we're just going to read the first four verses. Now listen. Be merciful to me, O God, for man would swallow me up. I don't know if you ever felt like that. I don't know if you've ever had relationships or circumstances like that, but I can relate. And he asked for mercy, not because he deserves to be saved, but because salvation from God is always mercy. Be merciful to me, O God, for man would swallow me up. Fighting all day, he oppresses me. My enemies would hound me all day, for there are many who fight against me, almost high. Whenever I am afraid, I will trust in you. Now, I told you David was a man of faith compared to Saul, who's a man of fear. We did that a couple months ago. And yet we have here David openly admitting, I, I get just as afraid as the next person. How do you deal with that, David? Well, whenever I am afraid, I will trust in you. In God, I will praise his word. In God... I have put my trust. I will not fear. What can flesh do to me? You need to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to yourself when you are afraid. How does the gospel of Jesus help you when you're afraid? The great God of heaven has sent his only son into the world to save you and promise you eternal life with him forever. So that as the scriptures say, there is no death for the believer. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. I do not need to be afraid. God did not save me so that I could die some worthless death and drift off into some unconscious resting place in the ground. God has saved me so that when the worst happens to me, when I die, I will be with him immediately. I will return and reign with him at the return of Jesus Christ. I will receive a new body and I will reign with the King of kings and Lord of lords for all eternity. I will not be afraid. David preaches to himself. God has saved me. In God, praise his name. There's the parenthetical in verse 4. In God, praise his name. I have put my trust. Not in armies, not in circumstances, not in palaces, not in chariots, not in peace, not in war, not in military might or conquest, not in the insurance company, not in the safety and the well-being of my company, in none of those things. In God, I have put my trust. And where he begins, acknowledging when I am afraid, verse 3, he ends in verse 4 saying, I will not fear. That's what you do with the emotion and the feeling of fear. You preach the truth of God and the truth of Jesus Christ and the love of God upon your life. You preach it to yourself over and over again and you tell yourself, I will not be afraid. What have I to fear? This is David's version of it. What can flesh do to me? Nothing. Kill me. Take everything I have. Ruin me. Take my body apart piece by piece. I'll have the pain of it. I'll endure it. 
but I will not be afraid of it. I have a new body, an eternal body, an eternal home. I will rule and reign with Jesus Christ. So, brothers and sisters, you do not need to be afraid. Do not be ruled by fear. And when you feel yourself trapped in indecisiveness or circumstances, and you know, well, you hear yourself even saying the words, well, I'm afraid this might happen, or I'm afraid it might lead to this, or I'm afraid of this. Just hear what you're saying. Do not be afraid. Second application. And this is the the dealing with fear. Jesus had chosen the disciples to serve him, and if you are a Christian, then you have been chosen too. You are going to have to overcome fear. In order to serve Jesus, you are going to have to overcome fear. This is a regular challenge of the Lord, and you know this in many different statements of the Lord Jesus Christ. When he tells his disciples, if they hate me, they'll hate you. When he tells the disciples, if they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. You're going to have to deal with this to serve Jesus. This do not be afraid is infinitely helpful in all of life's circumstances. But apart from dealing with this, much of your service to the Lord is going to be rendered futile. And Jesus would caution you about this saying, if you're ashamed of me before men, I'll be ashamed of you before my Father in heaven. In other words, he acknowledges the difficulty here. This is why he confronts Peter after Peter, you know, denies him three times. That's not going to work, Peter. That kind of fearful response to facing down these circumstances is not going to work. Praise God, Peter gets through it. This is Peter in Mark 4. Here is Peter in Acts chapter 4. After Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. It says, And being let go, they went to their own companies, reported to the chief priests the elders, and said to them, uh, So when they, what the chief priests the elders had said to them, so when they heard it, they raised their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, here they are, preaching the gospel to themselves. They've been threatened by the chief priests and the elders. Here they are. Lord, you are God, who made heaven and earth and the sea, and all that is in them, who by the mouth of your servant David said, Why do the nations rage and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand. The rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly, your holy servant, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. Now, Lord, look on their threats, And grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word. They were afraid. Give us boldness to speak your word. By stretching out your hand to heal that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant Jesus. This is the passage on the heels of the great phrase here. Peter and John answered and said to those who had imprisoned them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. Their fear had been realigned to the creator of the universe instead of mere mortals. Now, we've got to give an answer to somebody. 
whether it's right for us to be afraid of you and shut up about Jesus or be afraid of God and continue as we've been commanded, you decide for yourselves. And then this prayer. Application number one, you don't need to be afraid of anything but God. Application number two, you have to deal with your fear to be of use to God. You have to. Third one, last one. Do not let fear hinder the work of God in the gospel in your life. If we can just have a moment of honesty. Most of the time, when we don't share the gospel as we should, it's not because we can't figure out right words to say. It's not because we have no opportunity. Most of the time, when we don't talk with people about the salvation of Jesus Christ, we're just afraid. You can call it whatever you want. Oh, the time wasn't right. The situation wasn't right. I've said something before. I don't want to hassle them. I don't want to hound anybody. Okay, all right. Most of the time, it's fear. You're not the only one to deal with that. In fact, uh, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul starts in verse 5 by telling Timothy, Timothy, I want you to remember the faith that is in you. Why would he say that? Remember the faith that is in you. That's verse 5. And in verse 7, For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Now, Timothy's a pastor. And right out of the gate, Paul's feeling the need in this letter to him to tell him, Timothy, God has not given you a spirit of fear. I want you to remember the faith that is in you. I want you to deal with your fear by remembering the faith that was in you. And then in verse 8, don't be ashamed of the story of Jesus. That's the first thing he says in verse 8. Can you tell what Timothy's dealing with? It's evangelism, sharing the gospel. It's talking about Jesus. Timothy, remember the faith that's in you. Timothy, the spirit of fear does not come from God. And then verse 8, don't be ashamed of the testimony of Jesus. He says another one. Don't be ashamed of being associated with me, Paul. And then finally, don't be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the power of God unto salvation for all those who believe. Now, if Paul would say that to Timothy, nobody here should be offended by me saying it to you. God knows I need it too. Dealing with your fear is essential to be useful by God. Do not let your fear and weakness keep you from working in God's kingdom. Remember your faith. Pray for boldness. Don't be rendered futile by fear of men who cannot harm you. I hope it's encouraging to you. Let's close with a word of prayer. Now, Father, as we pray, our service isn't over and our worship continues. 
And we've actually come now to the most important part of this morning's message. For as we have read, you have not given us a spirit of fear, but a spirit of power and of love and of a sound mind. And Father, now the request to you comes that we will know the Spirit of God that you've given us. That we will be powerful in your Spirit. That the power of your Spirit in our lives will produce love, compassion. And that as we experience in power the overwhelming, the divine love and compassion that comes with your Spirit indwelling us, our minds will function properly as we reach out with the gospel to those who are perishing. That we will not be ashamed of the testimony of Jesus Christ. That we will not be ashamed of associating ourselves with those who are serving Jesus Christ. That we will not be ashamed of the very message that brings us out of darkness and into light. Out of hell and into heaven out of condemnation and into a promise of eternal life with you. Thank you for your son, Jesus, and now work in our lives through your spirit. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.